the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast, hosted by 360 Energy. On today's podcast episode, we have Sarah Keyes, CPA, CA, and CEO at ESG Global Advisors, Inc. Sarah is an ESG and climate change expert with over a decade of work experience as a thought leader, consultant, facilitator, and auditor. She regularly presents to executive teams and board of directors on the link between ESG and climate change with financial and operational performance and long-term value. Sarah helps her clients establish ESG and climate change strategies that align with strategic priorities, enabling effective integration with existing risk and strategy processes. Prior to joining ESG Global Advisors, Sarah was a principal at CPA Canada where she produced research, thought leadership and guidance for companies to integrate climate change considerations into business strategy, risk management, governance, and reporting. Previously, Sarah held senior roles at PwC and MNP working with the energy and mining sectors. She is the academic director and lead instructor for the Institute for Corporate Directors, ICDs, Board Oversight of Climate Change Program. She also facilitates a module on ESG and sustainable finance in the ICD's Director Education Program. She has a Bachelor of Commerce from McGill University, ISO 14064 Part 3 Certification for Greenhouse Gas Verifications, and received the 2018 Emerging Leader Award from CPA Ontario. Now let's get on to the episode with Sarah. Welcome back, Dave and John. Thank you, Lysandra. (laughs) Today, we are joined by Sarah Keyes, CPA, CA, and CEO at ESG Global Advisors Incorporated for an episode about the basics of ESG. Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Sarah, could you start off by explaining ESG Global Advisors Incorporated, who they are, and your role as CEO at the company? Absolutely. So ESG Global Advisors was established in 2019 in response to a gap in the market where companies were not able to fully understand or appreciate what institutional investors were looking for from them when it comes to ESG or environmental, social and governance issues. So our firm is really designed to bridge the gap between those two key audiences. We work with both companies and institutional investors on ESG issues. ESG is defined as environmental, social, and governance issues, and they are the subset of corporate social responsibility issues that are of interest to institutional investors because they have the potential to impact the financial operating performance of an organization, as well as its long-term value. On the company side, we help them conduct things like ESG materiality assessments. The concept of materiality is derived from financial reporting. In a financial reporting context, materiality is often defined as information that would influence a reasonable investor's decision to buy, hold, or sell a security. In the context of broader sustainability reporting, materiality is defined as sustainability issues that may be of importance to key stakeholders for the organization. This definition is broader than the more narrow financial materiality definition used in financial reporting. We help them to develop ESG and climate change strategies, 
as well as producing decision-useful ESG reporting and disclosure, typically using the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, SASB Standards, and the TCFD framework, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, which we'll discuss in further detail later in the podcast. But we also help investors. We help them to establish and update their responsible investment policies and approaches. We help them to further refine their ESG integration frameworks by asset class and better align with global best practice for ESG integration and responsible investment. As the CEO of the company, I have the pleasure of leading an incredibly skilled technical and professional team. We have an incredible amount of senior professionals who are leaders in the space, have been doing ESG work before the phrase ESG was even coined by the investor community. And so given we primarily work with senior management teams and boards of directors, we feel that our work is extremely high impact. And so it's very meaningful for all of us as passionate ESG professionals. And at the end of the day, I think it's really important though, we think with a mantra of meeting our clients where they are so that we can bring everyone along on the ESG journey and ensure no one gets left behind. Great response, thank you. This is gonna sound silly, but you've just described what ESG is. But what I'd like you to do is if you could give sort of, this is a two part question really. And the first part of it is, can you, could you give a, a sort of a picture of what ESG is for somebody who's not involved in it and also, how does the environmental, social and governance elements, how do they tie in with each other? Brilliant question, John, and a complex one. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the one I get the most. So, and it's almost essential every time I present, no matter how sophisticated the audience, whether they're brand new to ESG or have been in the space for quite some time and are sitting on perhaps the board of a leading organization in the space, it's always good to level set on the terminology. We've heard the terms triple bottom line, CSR, uh, sustainability, sustainable development, sustainable finance, ESG. What does it all mean? So let's let's take a look at where ESG evolved out of, which is the traditional corporate social responsibility function within organizations. CSR is not new. In fact, many pioneers, including that of my mentor and friend Bob Willard, have been pushing the CSR agenda for many decades. So it's really important to recognize the foundation upon which we're building. We're not starting net new when we think about ESG. But when we think about CSR, it's always traditionally been focused on things like philanthropic activities and broader interaction and engagement with a company's stakeholders, things like broader communities as well as employees. So you can think about CSR as really focusing on the values of the organization. ESG issues emerged as a result of institutional investor interest in the subset of CSR issues that could be financially material to an organization's financial operational performance and as a result, long-term value and the risk and return of those portfolio investments made by investors. So they started to say, we like the term ESG because it refers to the subset of CSR issues that could impact the value of the company. So when you're thinking about the distinction between CSR and ESG, it's not a perfect line. So CSR focused on values, ESG focused on value, and I would argue in today's world, that line between the two is blurring evermore. BP's uh, CEO Bernard Looney said it best uh, when he said they cannot continue to produce products in a world that doesn't want them. So the interconnection between the economy, society, and environment in which we operate is increasingly becoming more and more porous. 
So when we think about a few examples of what E, S, and G issues really are, I think it helps bring it to life. So allow me to just give a couple. Environment, not surprising, the biggest environmental issue today, climate change. And I know all of us are incredibly passionate about this. I wanna put it in context for everyone. Why is climate change the big ESG issue today? Uh, a brilliant futurist that I was just listening to on another panel, and I'm not gonna claim this as my own, but I, I really need to amplify this analogy. If you think about the Russian dolls, uh, where there's one inside the other inside the other, he says climate change is the biggest of the Russian dolls. And I think it was just such a brilliant visual. If we don't tackle climate change effectively, our ability to address other ESG issues is almost a moot point. But I wanna touch on what you just noted here, John, which is the connection. So I don't believe that we can address, for example, environmental issues like climate change, but also broader biodiversity, water management and waste management without thinking about the social and governance implications. So examples of social issues include employee health and safety, local community relations, indigenous relations and partnerships, as well as really big issues that have become a spotlight in the global pandemic, like diversity, equity and inclusion. And when we think about the connection with governance, governance is not new. I often get asked this question by my corporate clients. We understand governance, absolutely. What's relatively new when we think about governance in the context of ESG is the oversight of material, environmental and social issues. It's the integration of ENS issues into the oversight of strategy, risk management and performance that boards and management teams need to pay attention to. And as you noted, all of these issues are interconnected. So a single ESG issue should never be viewed in isolation. Best practice is to integrate it into your existing processes, especially around decision-making. One of the things I often like to point out is that ESG issues can often amplify existing business risks. For example, if a company is working in the mining sector, health and safety has always been an existing business risk of importance. When we start to think about the physical impacts of climate change in the form of more extreme weather, that's actually gonna amplify one of those social risks. So very important just to not only look at these issues one by one, but also thinking about interconnection with one another and how they impact core business risks that have always been traditionally overseen by management and the board. Yes, thank you for that. I, I'm, I'm gonna add a bit on there. And it's interesting because you're talking about the investment thing. I'm not a major investor, but I, I've got a pension fund. And every year I speak to my financial advisor and we talk about how it's going and what's going on. And it was interesting. I had to call with him on Monday. And this year, unlike last year, he, he asked, what was my view on investment in what he referred to as ESG stocks? And I thought, now that's interesting. He hadn't mentioned that last year. He knows what I do and we, we, kick, we kick that tin can around a bit. And then we ended up with a bit of a question and, and I'm going to put this to you because I sort of went, oh, yeah, well, you know, let's let's go for companies that are, are good with, with ESG because by adopting ESG, they will become better. And then he was saying, yes, but is it the good companies that do ESG or do poor companies do ESG and become better? So that that's the that's the sort of secondary question I'm posing to you. John, I love this question. And if you'll allow me for a moment, I want to just do some definitions that will help clarify this point. So when we talk about this whole world of responsible investment, it can actually mean a whole bunch of different approaches to ESG. So what we typically hear in the mainstream capital markets 
is ESG integration. And to your point, that means no exclusions. So they continue to invest in companies across all sectors and asset classes, but they're looking for the best in class ESG performers. And ultimately the mantra of those who take an ESG integration approach is to purchase and own the company and use the power of that ownership to engage with management and the board to improve their ESG performance over time. As an investor, of course, this mitigates their exposure and risk and improves their return, but it's also a meaningful way to affect and result in impact towards some of our ESG goals. When we go further along the spectrum, we start to get into socially responsible investing. And this is where we can start to see the delineation between value and values. Socially responsible investing actually applies negative screening to certain sectors that don't align with an organization or an individual's values. Yeah. Historically, it's always included guns, controversial weapons, and tobacco. Increasingly, the conversation is around fossil fuels and universities yeah. are facing it. The last category that's perhaps the most exciting, the smallest but the fastest growing, is impact investing. And this is where we say actually values come first in our investment thesis. We want to make an environmental and social impact first, and we're okay to compromise some of our returns. We still want a return, but our primary focus is that impact. So we often see the confusion around what responsible investment means, and it ultimately comes down to what is your strategy for you as John for your portfolio? Yeah, and then it gets complicated by then you go, and what's your appetite for risk? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and in the end, you 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 make you make a decision, uh, and and you and you go forward. But that's that is interesting because the the conversation I had was there was a clear delineation between ESG and ethical uh, with, with this advisor. Um, so so yeah, thank you for that. I think it's over to you now, Dave. Although I've got a suspicion that your question may have already been answered. <laughs> Ah, so I've tweaked it, John. I've tweaked it uh, <laughs> a little bit, just a little bit. Uh, it's got a little bit of... Sir, I want to come back to what you said about the blending of ESG, because uh, the work we do is typically on the energy slash environmental side. And so, you know, that's climate change. But, but I, re I was reading this morning that 21.5 million people are displaced every year because of climate change. I was blown away with that number and and i expect that number is going to increase so so i'm going well, okay so now that actually is going to have a social impact because you've got to move those people or do something with those folks that was not expected so i, I think your point is a really good one that they they all do blend together so that's a, that's a really important point but i just thought that was a huge number so here's my my question was it the financial was it the accounting people that actually brought in ESG, was it driven by the accounting people or who, who, can you share with us who you believe is the group that initiated that activity? It's a great question, Dave, and I think uh, lots of folks would probably like to claim they, they coined the term. It's one of those things that caught pace and speed and all of a sudden became the, the hottest uh, three letter word in 2020 and 2021. And it's interesting, you know, as someone who's been working in the space for over a decade, and I spent four years working for the Charter Professional Accountants of Canada, producing all their research and thought leadership and guidance on this topic. Indeed, I would say the accountants and the financial uh, accounting standard setters have been a little bit behind the eight ball on this. I think what's happened, and it's really, really interesting, 
is that the capital markets started to respond to and coin that term ESG around institutional investors. So the most sophisticated ones were thinking about ESG and reaching out to companies and asking for this information in its earliest stage. You know, for context and thinking about this whole timeline, um, interestingly, one of the best gauges of the investor interest and momentum behind ESG is the number of signatories to the UN's Principles for Responsible Investing. It was only established in 2006. So that was the first time it was ever even created. If you look at the number of signatories and the number of assets under management that have signed on to these six principles, it has skyrocketed in the last two years. We're now over 3,000 signatories representing over 100 trillion US dollars in assets under management. So it started with investors because they were worried about risk return. And I'd say it started in pensions because of their long-term time horizon. They really needed to make sure that as long-term investors, they were hanging on to stocks and companies that actually could produce that return in 30, 40, 50 years. But what happened is that term started to quickly gain steam in the broader capital markets. So more financial stakeholders with an interest in ESG issues started to pop up. Increasingly, we're seeing financial regulators like the Canadian Securities Administrators. We're seeing credit rating agencies like Fitch, Moody's, and S&P Global. And we're seeing stock exchanges like the TMX, which is responsible for the TSX and TSXV. And more and more, we're seeing the banks as key lenders to core sectors that have big ESG issues. So it started in that institutional investor community. And as John just illustrated, it's reached to retail. It's starting to find its way into all sorts of the broader capital market participants. Thank you for that. And, and I was speaking to a client that is in the... Uh affiliated and associated with the oil and gas industry. So they're getting heavy into the ESG, but they were talking about multiple careers. Like they were talking about, it's not just one person that's involved in the, in the uh, group. It, like they have advisors, they have analysts that they're hiring in specifically for ESG. So I, I didn't realize how it's become sort of a, a career on its own per se, where, and there's multiple departments or involvement of variety of people. I did not realize that it was such a big area of opportunity. Yeah. And I think one of the things I would just comment on that, Dave, is, you know, it's interesting. We work with companies across a variety of sectors, and I would suggest that those who have the highest greenhouse gas emissions are those who've been on the forefront of those original investor requests when the term first started coming up. And I know we work with similar sectors in that regard. So, you know, it's funny, I often get asked, who are the leaders? Oil and gas companies are leaders on this right now in Canada. Um, they've been facing this pressure, but I think the misconception is that it's only high emitting sectors who have to deal with ESG, which is indeed truly a myth. Uh, but on that point of growing teams, I find it really fascinating because you're starting to see a traditional finance function, like a CFO, getting brought into these conversations. But it's not just finance, it's finance, it's investor relations, it's HR, it's legal, it's regulatory compliance. The multidisciplinary teams I'm starting to see being established within these organizations is truly inspiring because that means we're getting to the point of really embedding it into those core business functions. And you've just explained something that we are very big on is that it's every everyone's responsibility. It's not just one person or one department. So you've just kind of conveyed how that's working out in the ESG thing as well. Earlier, Sarah, you, you, you were talking about TCFD and the 
task force on climate related financial disclosure and by the way what a wonderful snappy title that was it makes esg seem really clear and straightforward but i wonder if you could talk a bit how how they're interrelated if at all and is one superior to the other absolutely no i think it's such an important question john so when we think about climate change, as I mentioned, it's a really significant ESG issue. And it's not just an E issue, as I mentioned at the outset. Things like a just transition for workers and sectors uh, that have high emissions, that's a critical part of the S, part of ESG. And of course, governance, we're seeing an incredible amount of pressure on boards and management teams to really formalize and disclose uh, their accountabilities and their plans to achieve net zero by 2050 in alignment with the Paris Agreement. So the TCFD was introduced by the Financial Stability Board at the request of the G20 back in 2015. And it couldn't have come a moment too soon. We were starting to, we had just gotten the Paris Agreement in place and there was a recognition of the important critical role of the private sector and of the capital markets. But the issue was there were unpriced risks. No one had consistent and comparable information on the climate related risks and opportunities at a company or even at an asset level. So the challenge there was the desire to create some sort of consistent comparable disclosure framework. And that was established by Mark Carney in his capacity as chair of the Financial Stability Board. 32 member task force and their kind of slogan is it was designed by the market for the market. So it is a voluntary initiative, although I'm happy to speak to uh, some of the developments we've seen that suggest maybe not for much longer in North America. Interestingly, when they developed this task force, they brought in those who will use it. So they had all the big companies, big high emitting companies, they had the big accounting firms at the table, and they had large institutional investors who are seeking this information for decision making. What I really want to know most specifically for TCFD that's different from a lot of the other ESG frameworks is that TCFD applies both to companies and investors. And the reason this is meaningful is that the momentum to date has again, similar to ESG, come from the investor community. They're very concerned about climate related risks in their portfolio that they're not being adequately compensated for. So they have jumped onto this. They've said, we're gonna sign on to the TCFD and we're gonna report against it at a portfolio level. What that ultimately means is once they've signed on, they then need to go to all of their portfolio companies to get that reporting in order to produce it at the portfolio level. And over the past six years since the TCFD was introduced, we have seen that momentum skyrocket. Year over year, we see more and more companies voluntarily adopting the TCFD recommendations to report on climate change to their investors. And I wanna come back to your earlier point. How does TCFD fit in with this broader ESG world? The nice thing is that TCFD is designed to be complementary to other ESG and sustainability reporting standards. So it's not something separate, but actually something that can be embedded within. And it's not competing. It's a, an opportunity to provide more detail on the issue of climate change. Uh, and it provides much more guidance on specific metrics, targets, and what needs to be disclosed in relation to transition plans. Thank you. Sorry, I think you've talked about this, but I, I'm going to ask uh, it again, based on what I'm hearing and what I've learned is certainly the ESG is very important for the company, for investors, financial well-being. But is there any other reason why companies should go and look at ESG and bother focusing on that? Is, can you share with us if there's anything else that you think from your work that really helps them out by uh, utilizing the ESG formula? 
know what, Dave, this question I get a lot because increasingly I'm getting, you know, private companies reaching out to me saying we want to develop an ESG strategy. And when I probe a little bit deeper, there's a few reasons for this. First of all, we see public, you know, public companies are under the pressure to uh, respond to their investors, produce disclosure and comply with new regulations. Again, similar to oil and gas, they're kind of like on the forefront of this. But interestingly, there are three major reasons why we see uh, companies that do not have public equities interested in ESG. The first is that strong connection to performance. Whether you're uh, public or private, everyone wants to improve their financial and operational performance and overall increase the long-term value of the company. There's a tremendous amount of evidence out there, contrary to some of the myths you'll see, that show that ESG does support outperformance relative to those that do not take into consideration ESG factors. Things like lower risk, lower cost of capital, and that includes debt. So for those private issuers who are seeking debt, uh, we also see better operational performance and reputational benefits. The second reason is for private companies that sit within the supply chain of a public company. So whether they're providing uh, upstream supply chain goods, services, and materials, or whether they are indeed servicing customers who are public companies who are thinking about ESG-related issues, and therefore including ESG factors in things like requests for proposals and vendor procurement. The third reason, and perhaps most passionate for me, most interesting to me, and I hear this time and time again in real time, is the ability to attract and retain younger talent. The war for talent that we see right now, you know, I've been reading about this great attrition we're experiencing in the pandemic. It has level set and changed people's perspectives on where they wanna work, how they wanna work and why they wanna work. And that why piece, I think, is one of the most impactful things about an organization that has a meaningful ESG proposition because they're hearing it in interviews now. I have many oil and gas mining clients saying they're trying to interview these young, talented engineers. And if they don't have a good answer for how they're thinking about ESG and climate change, they're not interested in working for the company. When we think about the value of human capital and how intrinsically important it is to long-term value and performance, this to me is perhaps one of the biggest issues that companies of all types cannot afford to ignore. I'm so pleased because I think human capital is under understated or underutilized to actually make a difference. And uh, in our field, certainly technology has been talked about for years. And, and what we found is that it's actually, it's the people that will make the difference if you've got them motivated, involved, and passionate in the whole process. It's, it certainly speaks volumes. Thank you for sharing that. You mentioned ESG performance, which brings me to our next question. How do you measure ESG effectiveness? So for instance, do the categories environmental, social, and governance have varying importance to different companies or different industries? A great question and a loaded one. How do you measure its effectiveness? If we could solve that on this podcast, I think we're going to have a lot of listens to it. Um, and one of the things I would first note is, you know, similar to how we know ESG issues are interconnected to one another, but also, as I mentioned, to other business risks that maybe aren't termed ESG, I think one of the most important things is to be able to measure its effectiveness from multiple lenses. So what we often see is an organization using a variety of different reporting frameworks to measure effectiveness and monitor progress toward metrics and targets internally 
and to report on that progress externally to their investors, but also to other stakeholders. Coming back to our earlier point, maybe those who are interviewing at the organization and want to get a sense of uh, how committed they really are to the action associated with the words. So first things first, I think it depends on who you're trying to communicate to. So that's a really important one. As an accountant, I would be remiss not to point out that the materiality lens and threshold that you use for your reporting is really based on the audience that you're trying to report to, the users of the information. So you need to think about this from two perspectives. The first one is internal. So what information does management and the board need for decision-making and oversight? How can the board get comfortable with progress towards stated targets? And how does management know if they're on track or if actions need to be adapted and changed? So that's kind of the first bucket is all of these internal monitoring and metrics. Often when we're working with clients, we'll design really things that are bespoke to their organization. And it'll typically be a combination of leading and lagging metrics. Because lagging metrics are not so helpful uh, if you don't know what you need to do to change the actions to get the outcome that you're looking for. So a good combination of leading and lagging allows management to actively adapt its strategy to ensure that we actually get toward those targets. The second piece is the external disclosure. Uh, and what you're often going to see is the key reporting frameworks that are used. So if you're really trying to measure the impact of the organization outwardly, so what's the organization doing to the environment and to society, the two key reporting frameworks that you see to measure an organization's effectiveness or its impact are the Global Reporting Initiative Standards, or the GRI, as well as increasingly the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which are all where companies are really figuring out where are the goals we feel we can make the most meaningful impact? Now, those two frameworks, because they're outward focused, they're more of a CSR focus. They tend to use a broader definition of materiality that considers a, a variety of different stakeholders. But then there's the other lens. There's the lens inward. What's the impact of environmental and societal issues on the financial operational performance of our company and ultimately our long-term value? And that's where you see the TCFD recommendations being used for climate change, as well as the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board or the SASB standards. Those are the two investor preferred frameworks because North American investors using an ESG integration approach, they focus mostly on the impact of material ESG issues on the value of the company. But you know how I mentioned earlier that growing segment of responsible investment that's focused on impact? I think everyone should keep a very close eye on that. Uh, because that's where we're starting to see more outward focus. What are you doing as an organization to actually combat climate change? What are you doing as an organization to help us achieve key sustainable development goals? So that line, it's really referred to as dynamic materiality. It's this idea that we live in this world where the economy is embedded in society, is embedded in environment. We really need to be looking at two-way risks. Great answer, and this leads me to our last question. What is the biggest takeaway you can give our listeners from this episode? You tackled various topics all across ESG. What is the biggest takeaway our listeners can kind of run away with for the day? All right, I've got two. Okay. And the first one is that ESG is not going away. Whether you like it or not, it is here to stay. There's no going backwards, so it does need to be addressed. That's number one. Now, the second one goes with it. You do not have to become a leader overnight. It's about getting started, okay? Starting somewhere and getting onto the train, getting onto the journeys, and it's a journey. So this is about progress, not perfection. 
Not one of us has all the answers. There is no perfect ESG company, but it is here to stay and it's about getting started and really making progress over time. That's a great way to end off our episode. Our next episode with Sarah actually discusses industry implemented ESG and how to get started. So thank you so much for that. Dave and John, any last comments? I agree and understand what Sarah is saying because we hear ESG all the time. And the other thing that I like, Sarah, is it, I think it's creating more transparency and awareness uh, on issues that typically weren't measured or understood. So it's creating a, a bigger understanding within the organization and allows them to make better decisions. That's how I see it. So. And I, I, I was going to say, I think it's interesting because you could, you could take a view that a whole, whole lot of what we're talking about all comes down to people's perception and measurement and dealing with risk. You know, and I think one of, one of the problems we have, we're coming up to COP26 and suddenly people are going, mm, maybe the climate is something we've got to do something about. And suddenly it's, its risk seems bigger. Although what does concern me with the bit really big risks is how people then switch off because they go, it's so big, what can I do about it? Thank you so much. Thanks all, all of you for your time this week. It's been a pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you, Sarah. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Stay tuned for part two of this conversation next week. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune into our podcast on Apple Music and Spotify by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. See you next week.